on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. In the, 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 the history or the mythos of Judaism, the tree of life is, is a cosmic representation of our rootedness, our trunkness, our branchness, and our, our leafing and flowering and fruitingness and the cycle that we are. Each one of us is a tree of life. And it's all in that metaphor, you know, that we can apply to our lives. And then the tree gets dramatically chopped down, cut down, you know, like in a moment, it's like blazing chainsaws ripping through our trunk and we fall, you know, as individuals and as a collective. That's trauma. And that, that experience is not unique to, to Judaism. That experience happens and is happening to basically every land-based culture on planet Earth. But without a connection to nature, I don't think we can heal at all because we're just we're too far from the basic fabric of who we are. But when we can go and we can really re-enter the fabric of creation and not remember from the intellectual place, but in our own body and spirit, like lock back in, the wilderness is waiting there for us. And then it starts to speak in the quiet mind way, in the deep connected way. It starts to speak. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Rabbi Zella Golden, the co-founder of Wilderness Torah, an organization dedicated to supporting Jewish people to heal, learn, and grow together through reconnection to the earth. Zelig also holds a master's in Jewish studies and previously worked as an environmental lawyer protecting food and farms and has long guided groups into the wilderness. In our conversation today, we speak about Zelig's upbringing as a youth embedded in Jewish ritual, yet missing the deeper connection to his ancestral roots. We discuss the mystic origins of Judaism and his own path to rabbihood. And of course, we speak of the war in Israel-Palestine and the sorrowful complexity that contributes to the ongoing horror. We also touch on the recent year-long program that Zelig co-created for initiating the lives of Jewish men. And finally, he offers insights into how to dwell in the darkness before seeking the light as we approach the threshold of winter solstice. A reminder that The Mythic Masculine is now on Substack. You are welcome to become a free subscriber and gain access to all public posts and episodes. If you are financially abundant, please consider becoming a paid subscriber for $5 a month. This supports me to continue the many hours of effort it takes to research and produce each episode. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. You'll get access to exclusive posts, episode transcripts, and more. Visit themythicmasculine.com supporter to join. And now, enjoy my conversation with Rabbi Zelig Golden. Welcome, Zelig, to the show. Thanks, Ian. Great to be here. I'd love to hear a little of where you are in this moment, you know, geographically, emotionally, spiritually. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm in my, my 120 square foot office in the forest on the land that my family tends, called the Golden Nest. We're on coast Miwok, southern Pomoa land near the village of Occidental, California. And I'm in the midst of redwoods and oak trees and Douglas fir trees. And spiritually, <laughs> I'm in a really transformative time in my life in many ways, but I, I think that I'm to the point of it. 
I helped found Wilderness Torah in 2007. So 17 years into the project, I'm in another transition in the organization, moving from executive director into creative director and also creating space in my life to explore how to bring my medicine forward beyond, beyond the Wilderness Torah container. So it's an exciting time to explore my medicine and the medicine needed for the time. And yeah, I'm really delighted to be here. Mm. Well, thank you. Now, this uh, conversation came about, well, sparked at least now in this moment. I mean, we've been, I think, circling for a time. And you know, I've, of course, I've visited your land there, the Golden Nest, a few times. My good collaborators, John Wollstone, Julia Marianska, where we, we all came together to work on the Village of Lovers, of course, the Tamara film. And uh, you've probably heard lots of stories around that. I understand they both habitated there for a time at different times. And so, yeah, I think fondly of the land there and the, the place that you stewarded, as well as the times that I've been present to some of the Jewish celebrations there, or at least the, the rituals, in particular Shabbat. You know, the last time I visited there, I believe in the, in the summer, I think it was August. And uh, yeah, there was a beautiful Shabbat dinner that you held there on the land. And um, it really felt like I was, it wasn't the first Shabbat I've been to with, with other Jewish friends as well. But every time I am present to that, it, it, there's just something so rich and, and beautiful about coming together in that way. And these glimpses into uh, Jewish culture for me have always been just a, a profound, yeah, uh, just a profound richness, I feel, that one is often absent, you know, in my life, in my days, not as connected to my own ancestral traditions. But, but yeah, it always feels like a bit of this gateway into a vast and rich cosmology that is being kept and tended by, by folks who are really, really connected to this. And so, yeah, maybe to start there is, you know, one on your own upbringing, was this the norm for you? And, you know, the, the Jewish culture, Jewish ritual, I wonder how that either, you know, came to you or was always present for you on your journey as a young person. Yeah, cool. Thanks. I certainly grew up in a Jewish home. I'm, you know, close to 100% Ashkenazi Jewish with roots in Western Ukraine, the Carpathian Mountains, Czechoslovakia, Russia, um, as far as I know. And so we had a Jewish home and Grew up in Spokane, Washington, which was a one synagogue town amidst a fairly white conservative town with one of the major Aryan nations headquarters just 45 minutes from home in Hayden Lake. So Jewish identity and Jewish culture, it was it was a very powerful aspect of my life, actually. And the cultures, the culture at home was present. Um, like it was passed down. We didn't do Shabbat on a week on the weekly, like I do now with my family, but we would do Passover Seder. We would do, you know, a Rosh Hashanah dinner. I would go to synagogue periodically. I had a bar mitzvah. Um, I became a leader in my Jewish youth group uh, through the synagogue. But looking back on my experience of Judaism growing up, it was it was present and it always had a feeling of like, yes, but it was always like something to it. When I was young, I just went through the motions because it's what you do when you're in and you're choosing to stay in, which I did more so than most of my family. It was my soul's calling. It always has been, you know, for the mysterious reasons that we get sent to earth to do something. This was part of my calling. So I, I, I stuck in it, even though it was stilted at times or dry or And so the way I look back on that now, because now I'm, you know, I would say I'm helping to renew the traditions of my own family. And I would say that goes beyond my family. I'm helping renew through wilderness Torah and, you know, God willing, that's expanding beyond, you know, through this earth-based lens that I have been called to work on. Um, Judaism, as I look back on it, um, 
is for for most people today what I would call a PTSD religion. It's a post traumatic religion. Um, so many discontinuities, so many breaks, so much trauma. Of course, one would probably go to the Holocaust first and foremost. That would be Exhibit A. And if that's not enough, you go back in history and there's this layer upon layer going all the way back to 70 CE when the temple was destroyed by the Roman armies. And that's very, very far in our past. But the, the, the traumas between now, between then and now, they live in the way tradition, culture, and our own just behaviors people continues far through time. So what I would say I've been called to do is help renew the traditions and heal the traditions along with supporting the people who walk in those traditions to heal as well. And that's in some ways the essence of the, the, the work that I've done through Wilderness Tour over these last 17 years. Mm. Mm. Well, I couldn't not name, of course, that we are, I think, what, just over two months since the attack on Israel from Hamas and, of course, the horrific violence there and then, of course, the reaction from the Israeli government there. And, I mean, this obviously is a complex moment and, and also connected to so much of what you're also beginning to name here. And I wonder for you, yeah, what what happened for you when, you know, the news first came out of that initial October 7th attack and then in the time since? Yeah. Well, October 7th was right in the middle of the, the festival of Sukkot and it was right in the middle of Shabbat. And uh, Wilderness Torah was gathered with hundreds of people uh, on Green Valley Farm here in Sebastopol, California. And, you know, we had several Israelis who were in the group who were re receiving WhatsApp messages directly from people who were involved in the, the massacre at the, the music festival. So in some ways we were, you know, in the field instantly and it was horrifying. <laughs> My job in that moment as the rabbi holding the space was to presence what was happening and encourage us all to stay present, stay connected and to the extent we needed to take care of ourselves to do so. And I think the community was fairly successful at staying in the, the festival space that we were in while also allowing our hearts to feel what need to be felt. And, you know, and, and since then over the last two months, I mean, no one could have seen what's happening now. And it's, it's, it's horrific. You know, it's, it's absolutely horrific. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the most, like if you could almost put yourself in the, in the multiple, I know there's multiple realities at play, but for example, there seems to be, I talk to my Jewish friends now, and of course, some of them are saying, you know, this is horrific, and yet it, it's necessary. You know, like uh, Hamas has pushed us for too long, and this was the last straw, and so now we have to go in. It's sort of this, it's a, sort of a justified but necessary truth for them as as Jewish people as well. Like they are not connected directly to Israel per se, but uh, also living in the reality of anti-Semitism in their own lives, and that's being triggered. And then there's this yeah. other side, of course, to the Palestinian side, where it's like, you know, this oppression of the Israeli government and, you know, upon our lives for 75 years. And, you know, of course it makes sense. And now it's time that, you know, things have to change. And it just feels like the realities are so different in some ways that they, they almost like don't even meet, right? It's like the, whether it's a, yeah, the, whatever, the casting of who's evil in the situation, right? is just so clear, depending on what side you're on, that it becomes, yeah, very difficult to, to quote, land anywhere. And I just wonder how you navigate that complexity. Yeah. I mean, you have, in a very short amount of words, articulated the landscape, which is 
fairly really well. <laughs> it is uh, profoundly complicated, and it's the deep misfortune of the way Hamas has dealt with the political situation by massacring Jews in the way it did, as well as the deep misfortune in the way that this radical right, totally off the rails Israeli government is responding. I, you know, I, I think that both the, the, the militarized factions of Hamas and the Netanyahu government both wanted this war for their own political reasons and the collateral damage and the death of civilians you know, from my, my, my heart is absolutely tragic. Like I, my heart breaks and I sob for the Israelis that were killed. And I know some of those families personally, and my heart breaks no less for the Gazan civilians that are being killed as well. I don't know any of them directly, although I know people who know people in Gaza who have been um, killed by the bombing. (laughs) Uh, And uh, my heart breaks equally for that. And I, you know, it's in some ways an impossible situation and I think that rather than Israel just pointing its finger at uh, Hamas or Hamas just pointing a finger at the, you know, what they call an apartheid government, which I don't think is necessarily an incorrect accusation, the roots of this are so deep. And the problem is in some ways intractable. And I guess my only, my only prayer at this moment, you know, is that our hearts can break enough and that broken hearts can open far and wide enough that eventually Israel will unseat the Netanyahu government and the Palestinian people will somehow get to a place where Hamas, a militarized Hamas is no longer the ones ruling over what will God willing become a Palestinian state. And that, you know, this horrible episode, while inevitably will send the ripples of trauma continuing down the next three generations or more, that somehow in that field, there's also a realization that the violence is not going to be the way forward anymore. And as far as talking about, you know, the mythic masculine in Judaism, I, I, I'm sure we'll go here, you know, being a warring culture is deep in our roots going all the way back into the Bible. And this is something that we have to contend with. And the way we deal with conflict needs to change. And unfortunately, Israel is stuck in a cycle of violence that is not going to get it anywhere. And I think that is ultimately the truth for everyone in the Middle East. Until we get until we get there, this kind of horrific violence will repeat itself. Mm. Thank you, thank you for that link to to the mythic masculine elements. Which yeah, I'm, I'm we're approaching now. And one thing too is you know this conversation inevitably it starts to it weaves into politics, and at the same time, there's this there are these mythic dimensions that I feel can contribute to a way of seeing which can often illuminate more. Right then, simply some, oftentimes what a, what the political dimension will, and I say that because you know you mentioned PTSD in response to you know generations and generations of fragmentation and displacement, and of course World War II and the Holocaust, and there's obviously a deep link between the creation of Israel and the post-war response to to what what was brought upon Jewish people, right? And my curiosity around this, and maybe I'd love to you to speak on this, is you know, there's something around a, a, a recognition, of course, that a peoples who have been displaced for so long, suffering a deep, intense horror, like the Holocaust, of course, then there's this response, which is understandable, which is like, we need our own place where we can be safe, right? Like we need, we need a homeland, we need to, we need to find somewhere. And in some ways, there feels like there's this 
deep longing for the land and the, the land of our home, the land of the mother, right? The mother of the culture in a way. And so there's this understandable, it's like, we need to get to Israel and we need to like recreate our sense of safety because of what happened to us as this like understandable trauma reaction. And I understand for you, like Zionism and the roots of Zionism, again, I, I know a little, not much, but how is that related to, in a sense, that, yeah, you could call it the, the, the post-consequence of deep trauma, like almost crystallizing itself as this, this necessary enactment of, you know, we have to get somewhere safe into our homeland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, such a deep uh, inquiry. You know, if you read the if you read the Bible, what Jews call the Torah or the five books of Moses, and you go into the um, you go into the third chapter. This is the chapter where God comes to Moses. Sorry, not Moses. Avram. This is before Avram becomes Avraham. Many initiatory moments in the in the Torah with the ancestors receiving new names, and Avram. And his partner, Sarai, who becomes Sarah later, these are the original forefather and foremother, both of the Jewish tradition, but also of Islam, by the way. This is when they're sent, you know, the God comes in, in the story and says, Lech lecha, lecha, go away, go, go, which also means leave your home, leave the home of your father and go find your own place. And it also says, go, go, meaning go to yourself. So it's, an, it's a call towards initiation to leave home and find their own place. And where does... Where does Avram and Sarai go? They go to Alon More. Alon is an oak tree. More is a teacher. So they go and they sit at the, oak, the, the, the teaching oak tree. This, you know, it, it evokes Sarata Gotama, you know, in a way. But there the field opens and God comes and gives a vision. The vision is that they will go to a land that the creator will show them. And it's fairly universally agreed upon that that's the land of Israel. So in the mythos, it's very deep that the land of Israel is our ancestral, ancient, and God-given homeland. So that's that's in some ways bedrock in the psyche of Jewish people. And up, you know, for millennia, the Jewish people resided in that place as a homeland. Not just one temple erected, but a second temple erected after it was destroyed, rebuilt two temples. A deep resilience there as well. And a place where the priests of the Jewish people tended a sacred fire for 500 years continuously. It says in Leviticus, there should be a sacred fire on the altar, it should not go out. And the historiography shows that the priesthood, they tended that fire continuously, not unlike the priests in Chavin in Peru, which is, you know, an even longer standing sacred fire, but only because it wasn't destroyed as quickly. So for a thousand years, there's two cycles of 500. For a thousand years, we tended a sacred fire there, bringing the choicest, you know, vegetables and animals from the flocks and spices and oils. And so it's, it, it, you know, if there is a place that is the indigenous taproot of the Hebrews, you know, which would become known as the Jews, that's it. And the center place is, Ju- Judea, is, is, is Jerusalem, you know, what the Torah calls the navel of the world. Not unlike for the Incan people where, you know, Machu Picchu is the navel of the world, called the same thing. So there are, there are several navel, navels on this planet, and one of them is in Jerusalem, at least from the perspective of the Hebrews. In 70 CE, that temple was destroyed by the Roman army, and it was like the, the massive break. The fire goes out, the temple's destroyed, and, the, you know, the Jews are exiled into Babylonia, into Babylon. 
and Zion becomes the the dream of the return. Zion becomes, in some ways, like the the epitome of the Garden of Eden of the of the time when we can return and be in peace and be home again. You know, and then in you know fast forward almost two thousand years, you have many Jews now residing in Russia and Poland. You know, a substantial center point for Judaism is now in Eastern Europe and. The pogroms and you know the 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 repeated expulsion that impulse to expel the Jews comes again, and the the, the Zionist ideal emerges, and in its origin, in, from my perspective, it's a it's a dream of home. It's it's based in that yearning to be safe, to be connected, and then to drink from the mother once again. Who doesn't want to be connected to the mother? I mean, you said it exactly, and it was a, you know, a, a in a large part, it was a return to the land. And it was also a, the development of a political idea. Now, there are many different threads of Zionism. My favorite is Olaf Dalek Gordon, who wrote really beautifully in 1910 in an essay called Logic from the Future. He says, you know, that when you, and it, it, he doesn't use the word Israel um, in, in, in much of this writing. He's just speaking about the land and speaking about being a human being disconnected from the land. You know, as a earth-based practitioner who's wanting to get people, forget the Judaism piece, getting people back to connect it to the land. I use A.D. Gordon a lot. He says, when you return back to nature, you will see yourself in the mirror and you will realize that you had forgotten yourself because you have forgotten your relationship to nature. Now, he's a labor Zionist and his dream was to work the land and to to rebuild, you know, and plant orchards and all that. And he was a, he was a spiritualist. He was a visionary, you know. And I, I really embrace that kind of Zionism. So in a sense, I am a Zionist, meaning I believe that there needs to be a homeland for Jewish people in this world that it's, has not been historically safe for thousands of years. Now, the Zionism that's getting spun around in the media today and the connotations of Zionism today, a violent apartheid you know, project of racism against Palestinians, but also Bedouins, et cetera, I don't want anything to do with that. And I don't believe that's what Zionism in its heart. And I do believe because of the layers of trauma from the past and the leadership we have now too, which has been voted for and elected by the people of Israel, there is a perpetuation of trauma through Zionism, which is deeply unhealthy. And 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 that's where the problem is. But there, there is not one Zionism. I think we have to be clear. We have to be very careful. Zionism has many different strands, and there are healthy forms of Zionism in my particular view, and there are very unhealthy forms of Zionism as well. And I would say that is probably as much connected to healthy and unhealthy masculinity as anything. Mm. Mm. Thank you for that. That is very yeah. helpful. Now, I'm going to, again, jump back now to your own upbringing now. So you, you said you grew around the Jewish culture in some ways, and it really sort of called your soul. And I'm curious then the timeline to in the path of becoming a rabbi, I mean, as well as your connection to, I think, like earth, you know, wilderness vigils or rites of passage or, you know, like when, when did the seeds of the wilderness Torah begin to germinate for you? Yeah. So, I mean, just kind of rewind the tape to being a, a young kind of naive Jew in Spokane, doing the thing, being a leader. And then I went off to college. And as I went off into college, I, I wandered I got lost. And one thing I noticed in looking back about Judaism was that Judaism did not have the resources to support me. Hmm. It wasn't Judaism where I went to, to get sustenance or rooting. And I, and I look back and be like, huh, it's because there was an unrootedness of the Judaism that I was experiencing. 
And so I went to other other places to get support. Nature was number one. Early on in my college career, I fell in love with the wild, the wilderness. I ended up studying ecology, environmental science. Um, I became an outward bound instructor. I spent a lot of time climbing in the mountains of the North Cascades, doing a lot of very risky behaviors on what I would call my first layers of initiation into manhood, completely unsupported. But it wasn't through the dangerous behaviors of like, you know, drug addiction or alcoholism or, you know, other things that we might see, which is the, a natural consequence is having an uninitiated, uninitiated culture. For me, it was, you know, climbing multi-pitch rock and ice, probably with un- insufficient training and, and risking life or limb. And yeah, it's pretty amazing I survived. I, you know, I could get into a lot of harrowing tales on the precipice of this glacier, that waterfall ice or that, you know, granite face. And it, it nourished my soul. You know, I, I found something there. Eventually, I came into communing Judaism and nature and discovered that there were already people before me, predecessors, who were making the links between Judaism and nature. It was sort of a, you know, an environmental movement within Judaism. So I began, you know, post-college to teach and learn about that. But it really wasn't until I went to law school that I got forced to do the deeper work. So I eventually went to law school. That's what brought me to California. I went to UC Berkeley, studied environmental law. I became an environmental lawyer. I fought on the tip of the sword of the anti-GMO movement and the organic food movement for about seven years as a staff attorney with the Center for Food Safety. It's a very proud part of my my journey. And I felt like that was my warrior phase when I picked up the sword of the pen and, you know, took Monsanto all over the Supreme Court and, you know, all that. But alas, I was miserable. You know, I remember at a certain point in that journey where I was at home with antidepressant medications in hand, looking at myself in the mirror with bags in my eyes. And I'm saying like, fuck, I have come so far. I, I, I thought I was on the right path and to fight the good fight. And, you know, I learned again that the fighting is based on my own trauma. <laughs> that in some ways I was, I was recapitulating by being an activist in a certain kind of way and to fight the fight. I was playing something out that wasn't mine to play out. So what did I do? First, I started off with a a three-year journey of deep psychedelic therapy. And at the end of that journey, where I had become unlocked from certain patterns and stories, I then had the impulse to go on the hill and pray for four days for my life and for a vision. And I did. That was 2007. And when I came down the hill, supported by my mentor, Mike Bodkin, and writes a passage an incredible journey. And I, I came down with the seed of a vision and, and the basic seed was to get my people back to nature. Mm. And it was three years of being a lawyer yet, but slowly, slowly Wilderness Torah came into being with our first event in 2007. And then we launched Wilderness Torah formally. And I left the law practice altogether after the Supreme Court case in 2010. And, and then I was on a path that was feels like a true soul path. I had really been learning a lot and interested in Judaism and yearning to learn more. And it wasn't until 2013 that I realized three years uh, into leaving the law, but six years into the project of Wilderness Torah, that I was doing the thing that rabbis do without the learning that a rabbi needs. And so support from my mentor, Rabbi Zalman Shakti Shalomi, my elder, Zichron Levracha, like bless his name, bless his memory. I jumped into becoming a rabbi, like, already halfway into the practice of wilderness Torah. And so I feel like I had to mm. learn and backfill the knowledge so I could carry 
you know, the staff, so to speak, of what what I was becoming because of the vision I was carrying. Mm. Wow. Thanks for all those threads coming together. And yeah. you know, you had a phrase there. It was something like, yeah, doing doing what a rabbi was doing, but without the training to do what I was doing, or something you said there. And that was yeah. a yeah, that's a powerful way of phrasing it. And I'm curious, what is the path of a rabbi then? And, and of course, my understanding of rabbi is, is, is like a spiritual leader, some kind of like within the Jewish community. But I'd love if like, what, what is this sort of uh, rabbi-centric understanding of that in terms of the function amongst your people? Yeah, totally. Well, like anything in Judaism, there's not one answer. And it's also a spiral. It's evolving and changing. A, a rabbi basically means my teacher. So if someone you know says to you, you're my rabbi, then they're, they're, they're claiming you as a teacher. And I would say in its earlier origins, a rabbi is a scholar or a teacher. Mm-hmm. So someone who studies and teaches the Jewish law. That's really like what a, so going from like a, you know, a secular lawyer to a rabbi was a, you know, in some ways a, a natural transition. And I say that in jest because that's actually not true because a ra- rabbi is becoming many different things now. So it, it is also... And over time, becoming more so a, a spiritual leader, and so, and I think that I embrace more of the, the spirit and the deep cultural wisdom, you know, bringing forward the history that is contained in the many volumes that our ancestors have recorded our traditions and histories in, to bring it forward to to help reawaken the next, or the, the you know the emergent version of what Judaism can be, what what, what I and others call earth based. Judaism and really dreaming of regenerative earth-based Jewish culture that would be and walk side by side with regenerative earth-based cultures from, you know, the many other peoples and cultures along the way. And the path, the traditional path would be go to rabbinical school for five years, get your, get your stamp and then go out and join a synagogue or something like that. I, I had a bit, a bit more of a winding path along the way before actually jumping into rabbinical school I was learning here and there. I was ordained as a magid. Magid means storyteller. It also means an itinerant teacher. And it harkens back to the 18th century when the early Hasidic masters, mostly of Poland, had their courts and their students. And they would deploy people that they would call the magid, the teacher, the itinerant, the itinerant storyteller or ritualist into the, into the country to support the needs of the people. So... The Magid of Mezrich, you know, a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov is the archetypal example. And Reb Zalman, my teacher, he ordained me in 2010 as a Magid. And I think he hoped that I would actually not go to rabbinical school because he saw rabbinical school as a trap. And he was a great rabbi, but he saw for me, he saw that I was carving a different path. And he said, you know, as a Magid, someone, and he called me in Hebrew, it was the guardian of the pathways into nature. That's how he, that's how he ordained me. Um, and he said, I want to free your feet. I want you to just to be able to follow your path because you're already doing it. But then three years later, I came back to him on my knees. I said, I want to go to rabbinical school. I need to know so much, you know? And, and he said, okay, I bless you to go to rabbinical school, but don't let them waste your time. Don't do anything there that's not actually aligned with your path. And why is that? You know, why would he say that? Because, because so much of Jewish tradition became a codification of, of Jewish law, rules and regulations, a very legalistic, really kind of wildly fastidious in its praxis when you're in the orthodox realm. And I think that that is also a product of trauma. Mm. You know, almost like an obsessive compulsive disorder, we can see the ripples 
and how the codification of and I and we could I, you know I teach whole classes on how Jewish law sort of became more and more codified and ossified through time. You know, for example, in the 13th century, you have Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, Maimonides, one of the greatest rabbis of all time. He was now dwelling in Spain in the 13th century, and it's you know the the they're they're getting the Jews are getting swept out of Spain by the you know by the Muslims who are driving them out. And the Rambam, a great physician on the one hand and a great Torah scholar on the other hand, before the fullness of that expulsion, writes the Mishnah Torah. And the Mishnah Torah is the, is the first codification of Jewish law. It's the 13th century. So it's not the origins of Judaism. But it's the first codification where there's a prescription for everything. The specifics of how you do this, how you observe Shabbat, how you cook your food, how you have this and that. I mean, wildly detailed. And so that's what Judaism became. And a rabbi was the person who learned all that stuff, the deep history and all the rules. And there would be the person that they would come to and say, Rabbi, how do I, you know, you name it. How do I do this thing so I stay within the tradition? And I think it's fascinating. And there's deep intentions behind some of those things which are useful. But the rabbi of the future, in my view, needs to be someone who carries the, the basket of tradition, the roots, the culture, while understanding the rules enough to help us navigate and break free from those rules. Why having continuity and Mm -hmm. open up the field for a a more regenerative paradigm? That's the best way I can understand it for now. It strikes me that as I learn around indigenous culture and even like the roots of, of cultures or religious traditions that maybe, like you said, they sort of start getting away from a kind of initial encounter, like a mystic encounter with, the origin. Of course, Jesus, right? Like he, during his time of teaching, one teacher I have, you know, explained how, you know, he was Christed after the fact. Like, you know, there was sort of the initial sort of Gnostic, you know, deep encounters people were having. And then later, of course, it turns into something else. And then it's used for different political gains and blah, 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 you know, gets away from that like mythic origin. And I wonder for you in understanding the, like the mythic origins of Judaism, uh, what do you what do you understand there, or what what do you hold now as as true in it in that sense? Yeah. So Judaism um, is rooted in a more ancient Hebrew tribal experience. That's the first thing that's important. To understand that Judaism becomes Judaism, like in the in the wake of the destruction of the temple, like second century. So Judaism, even in its, in its origins and its labeling, becomes something in the wake of the destruction. So we have to go earlier than Judaism to understand and heal Judaism and Jewish people. That's, that, that's first and foremost. If you look in the, you know, and so then we, one of the amazing things about Judaism, and I'd say in contrast to many other indigenous traditions, is that for reasons of history, we have a very, very intact written record. Not perfect, but a very intact written record. So we can track and trace and glean and learn and evolve from these deep roots. So two things, I mean, I could, I could riff on for an hour on this, you know, but two, two threads. One is that pre-Judaic culture, call them the Hebrews, were clearly a land-based people, number one that lived and, and transmitted its tradition through an oral tradition. 
there is not a singular definition of indigeneity. It is all over the place how you define indigenous people. But one one common thread, two common threads are long established residing in a land from which our oral tradition emerges. And so to me, you know, Judaism is rooted in an ancient indigenous culture. Now, I am not claiming indigeneity for political purposes. I know where that where that conversation leads, but I'm just saying that one thread is that we are deeply connected to the land. And then number two, it is very clear that we're, you know, it is an emergent tradition in its earlier states with very profound and very direct relationship to the sacred, to the deity, to the the you know, the oneness, to angels, spirits, powers. You know, there's a claiming of one God, but it comes in many forms. And that prophecy is a hallmark of the, the early evolutions of Jewish tradition. Equally powerful is that both of those channels get cut off. Hmm. We're cut from the land more than once, but in 70 CE, it's pretty final until the return that begins in the early, in the late 19th century. And then the establishment of Israel, of course, and we can debate the health of that return, but, but, but the break is early and it's deep. And the rabbis also proclaim that the doors of prophecy are closed. It is no longer an idea that we can receive prophecy anymore. And I think that's completely misguided. Based on my own personal experience, I'm not claiming prophecy here, but I'm claiming the possibility of every human being to do what most indigenous peoples have done throughout time and continue to do today, although in fractured kinds of ways because of the way cultures have been fractured. And that is to go and seek vision alone in communion with God, the divine, in nature. And, you know, every one of the, the, the four fathers and some more foremothers as well did that. Avram and Sarai do that. Alon Moreh. Moshe <laughs> receives the Torah on Mount Sinai. Jacob becomes Israel, you know, after crossing a river and, ha- and wrestling with an angel all night long. It, it just goes on and on. Devor the prophetess, you know, is famed for sitting under a palm tree and receiving prophecy. So it's a prophetic tradition. And, and what does that point to? It, I don't think it, it points to prophecy, the big P. It, 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 it reminds me that it is the basic human capacity to have direct, unfettered connection with God or whatever you want to call that sacred power and receive instructions for your life. And some of those people will also receive, receive instructions that are not just for their lives. And Reb Zalman, uh, I'll invoke him again because, you know, in some ways he is the bridge from the old world to the new world that I am talking about, that I want to see happen. And I'm walking on his bridge, you know, very, very respectfully and very, very gratefully. He said that in order for the paradigm shift to come, what you and I might call the regenerative culture of the future, he said three things have to happen for Judaism. Number one, we need to stay rooted in our ancestral tradition and culture. Number two, we need to evolve and upgrade our spiritual technologies. So the way we pray needs to change. The way we make our offerings need to change. You know, we need, we need to break the boxes and grow and evolve while staying rooted. Number three, the doors of revelation stay open. And that's how we make it through. And I completely agree with that. And I repeat that because I think it's the deep teaching that nature connection and revelation or prophecy, if you want to say it that way. Mm. Wow, there's yeah, a lot of threads too. I'd love to open up. I mean, just in terms of the the sort of last pieces, at least of the foundations, 
I would love to know the difference between, so there's the Torah, which I understand is kind of like the, the main holy book. Is that correct? And I mean, you can speak on a second, the Torah. And there's also the Kabbalah, right? Of course, it gets bandied around a lot if you're in uh, more, I don't know, spiritually new agey circles too, but not just that. But I'd be curious to know the difference between those uh, or how they're related. Yeah, yeah. So the Torah is what we call the five books of Moses. It's uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, and then what Christianity claims is what becomes the Old Testament. But to Jesus, the Torah. It's the same thing, pretty much. Um, although when you translate it into English, a la King James, and then perpetuate that forward, it actually changes shape dramatically. So um, what people understand to be the Bible um, is a profound interpretation of an ancient script that was written in Hebrew that is not actually fully expressible when translated. So that, that's, a, that's a trick that we need to you know, deal with mm. through history. The Torah contains, you know, Genesis and Exodus especially, some of the original and deep mythological stories. So, you know, starting with the Garden of Eden and Adam and Chava, what people call Adam and Eve, or Adam for me is the original earthling, Adam, Adama, human and, and earth. And then you have the stories of, you know, Abraham and Sarah, and you have the, the early awakenings of what become the Jewish tribe through Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons and one daughter. And, you know, it goes on and on. And then the Exodus is the tale of, you know, the Passover story, you know, the roots of liberation theology and the, the great confrontation with Pharaoh, the 10 plagues and the, the movement across the sea. And then the, the, the journey through the wilderness. And then eventually you have the crossing into the, into the, the Jordan, into the land of Israel. Leviticus is like a priestly code, almost like a shamanic manual of ancient rites, you know, that get very, very specific and which kind of thread and which kind of offering. And, you know, it's, it's, it's deep and profound. And then Numbers and Deuteronomy are stories and re recapitulation of stories. And Deuteronomy itself actually has, uh, it's the latest of the books in the canon. And it has <laughs> both some of the most profound instructions to destroy the relationship to divine feminine specifically wow. to to cut the goddess Asherah, while also providing some of the most profound social justice texts and some of our biggest spiritual teachings like the Shema, which is the proclamation of oneness of divinity and became the central prayer of Judaism. So it is not without its complexity. It's a very complex story. And the stories, unlike other spiritual texts, the, 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 the Torah is very raw. I wouldn't exactly call it a history, but it's a very raw mythology where it's not just giving us the light, you know, the, the characters are real. The characters are complicated. There's deceit. There is treachery. There is, you know, it's all in there. And there's also profound realization and evolution. We can learn a lot about the, about initiatory culture from looking at the real lives of these mythological tales. Mm. Kabbalah. First of all, the word Kabbalah means receive, receive the receiving so the word likabel in Hebrew means to receive. So Kabbalah is the receiving. But what are we receiving? You know, it's the what most people consider the deeper dimensions of Torah, the deeper spiritual lessons. And um, Kabbalah comes much later. So the writings of Kabbalah are mostly medieval, actually. The Zohar, Zohar means the illuminated, is a commentary on the Torah. It's very typical for scholars to write commentary on the on the so when you read the torah each week it has its own chapter and 
So Zohar is a mystical commentary on the Torah, going chapter by chapter. That's the core text of it. And it is a mystical uh, in-looking to you know what the deeper dimensions of the, the Torah are. So one example is looking in the Parsha Truma. Truma is about offer, certain offerings. It's commenting on the nature of Kadesh Baruch Hu, the Blessed Holy One, which is the masculine form of God, and then the Shekhinah, the indwelling presence, which is becomes known as the feminine aspect of God, and how the Kadesh Baruch Hu, the masculine form, is sort of the dominant God, the one who calls upon Matrona, his beloved or his queen, which is the embodiment of Shekhinah, and how she hides, you know, now she went, and when she comes, she creates this illuminated experience, but then she hides again. And, and there's this comment that says, you know, when we say the, this one prayer, the Shema, it represents the Kadosh Baruch Hu, so we say it out loud. But when we say the, the next line, the Baruch Shem Kavod, it's the second line, it's referring to the Shekhinah, the presence. We, we, we can only whisper it. And we can only whisper because she is in exile. And you're like, whoa. And, 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 and the Shekhinah, the feminine aspect of God being in exile is a deep threat of Jewish mysticism. And I mean, what does that mean that she's in exile and he is not? What does that mean about ourselves? Some, some masculine aspect of ourselves is not in exile, but some feminine aspect is. And this is one of the threads of, of Kabbalah. Of course, Kabbalah then becomes so many different kinds of teachings. The, the Sfirot or the tree of life and the many emanations of divinity in the world and how we interpret that and how we apply it to our lives. And it goes on and on. But it, it's rooted in the Zohar primarily coming from the medieval period. Mm. Wow. <laughs> I could. Yeah, I'd love to just spend hours on this too. This is really helps, you know, make lots of links in terms of my limited understanding. And so I'm really yeah. appreciating that. And one thread I did now want to go down was this link to uh, masculinity and initiation, you know, initiations come up a lot. The feminine in hiding and exile, that's that's pretty interesting. And I'd be curious to know, so you also stewarded a program for men, I understand, for about a year. This is something I heard yeah. about from John Wolfstone, I named before, who also was supporting that. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear a bit, a bit about that program because it seems to combine a lot of the elements that you're speaking to, like a sort of rooted earth-based dimension alongside initiatory frameworks, particularly for men. And yeah, and I'd love to know, well, you know how, what was your approach to that and what were some of the elements that were felt really vital for you to include in this, this journey you took them on? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, John and I co-created this year-long journey for Jewish men. And you know, to preface it, one thing I'll say is that when Wilderness Tower was born in 2007, the, the kind of like what I perceive as the poppy seed of a vision was simply get your people back to earth, back to nature. And so in planting that, we started bringing people, you know, doing festivals and gatherings outside again and then over time we we tracked the evolution and the yearnings that would come for that and one of the the pieces that we realized over time that was as we returned back to the earth one thing that we need to be doing is reclaiming our initiatory rights that the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah or we not call you know gender neutral b mitzvah was insufficient because in some cases it was just a an indoctrination process but the deeper dimension of, of soul-centric development, you know, what Bill Plotkin would talk, you know, in, in Nature and the Human Soul would talk about the soul-centric development of human beings so they can actually move around the wheel from their soul place was mostly lacking in, you know, the, the B-Mitzvah experience. And then as we 
as we tracked that, we we're like, oh, wow, there isn't even any kind of initiation for adulthood. Um, never mind, is there an initiation for elderhood? It's, it's all missing. And we had to ask the question, were those initiations intact way back when? And the answer is we don't really know. We don't have those records. So from that impulse of really wanting to recover cultures of initiation, we decided at a certain point it was time to offer an, an adulthood initiation. Now, my, my wife, Rachel, launched a project called Tree of Life about a decade ago. And Tree of Life is a, a multi-phase process for women's initiation. And I've been watching her do this work for over a decade, and she is amazing at it. And John and I both have sat at her feet and learned about how she does that. And I've gotten, obviously, front row seats on the process. And also inspired by her, we thought it was time to step up to the plate and bring a men's initiation mm -hmm. forward. So we did. There's a bunch of elements to it. Number one, it was very important that John and I, as visionary leaders, that we didn't just move this thing forward on our own, that we were very well anchored by elders. So we, we brought Terry Simmons Buecher, who's one of the founders of Canticle Farm in Oakland, um, who's uh, a Franciscan person who helped create the project Illumine, doing initiatory rites for Christian men, Catholic men. He came and anchored us as an elder. What a gift Terry was, as well as Rabbi Dan Goldblatt. Rabbi Dan, also ordained by Reb Zalman directly, supported us as an elder anchor. So having those elders was key. And we also brought in two uncles, one Jewish and one non-Jewish. Scott Davidson, an amazing tracker, nature connection, and um, writes a passage guide. He lives out of Three Creeks on, on, near Bishop, California. And Asher Lyons, who is an incredible ceremonialist and runs a thing called Medicine Theater, which is helping people get to their soul through creative play. And, and so the six of us moved this project forward. And the gist of the experience was a year with five fairly substantial ritual experiences, then punctuated by overnight fire ceremonies that were actually supported by my wife. So encountering the feminine in ceremony intermittently throughout these other larger ceremonies that were held by men. And without going into all the detail, you know, the ceremonies included being in with the fire, confronting ourselves, confronting our shadow, doing deep solo time with overnight fire solos, which is in some ways a recapitulation of adolescent rite of passage, doing death work and doing grief work, and, and then ultimately taking them to the mountain and putting them on a four-night dry fast to pray for their lives and pray for a vision and have a direct encounter. You know, all the way along, we taught them about Jewish prayer as well as universal approaches to prayer, prayer, how to pray. We explored routines of nature connection and certain hand skills and, you know, beginning to reclaim a relationship to the natural world through crafting and harvesting. And, um, and, and you know, one of the things I'll say about the initial journey was profound for the seven men who went through it. And one of the questions we held, because we don't know the answer to this question, is what is a healthy Jewish masculine person look and feel like and behave in the world? It's an inquiry. We don't have an, and of course they asked us that question, but we don't have an answer for you. We are all in the question. And so let's go into ceremony with that question over and over and over again. As you discover your, about your own personal material, what you've inherited from your fathers and your culture and from your experiences and how, how are you personally needing to evolve what catches you and also holding the larger question as a small group of Jewish men what does it mean to grow into healthy masculinity? Mm. Beautiful inquiry. 
and to live the question, as you say, over and over again, as as important as that. And you know, I'm struck with the the function of that process and that encounter. I myself have been through a, a four year cycle, so f- four times, you know, over four years, being out. It's probably sim- very similar. Four nights, or sorry, three days, four day, four days, three nights. And for me, what I mean, it's still, of course, that encounter is still having its way with me, right? As as it probably will, you know, looking back and being like, what was that? And you know, how how did that alter me? And how how is it continuing to alter me? And one of the things that has stuck with me is this recognition that there's something very very like foundational and, and in some ways simple, but absolutely necessary. It seems to be essentially met by. But, you know, we've been calling it nature, right? But to be met by nature, to be in nature, to be alone in the sense of perhaps alone, devoid of human company. But certainly anybody that goes out there knows that they are very much not alone. And in some ways, the vastness of what, you know, what we could call nature, what we could call just the, the life itself, it's so vast and so much bigger than me, right? Bigger than me as this you know, individual moat of consciousness and in, in humanness. And that encounter somehow is so blistering, uh, reconfiguring for some reason that it does something to the ego, it feels like, right? The ego sense of the centrality of oneself. And, uh, you know, one of my main teachers, Stephen Jenkinson, has said, you know, the, the wilderness doesn't mean you harm. It just doesn't mean you. And... I just, I just love that phrasing of it. It's like saying, look, it's not against you, but you're not the center of the story either. And that's like, that's for men especially, that somehow seems to be such a necessary teaching, a necessary reconfiguration. Because without that, it seems, right, so youth are left to essentially like push edges, to take risks, to, in some ways, I see it as wanting to find where they end, uh, but not being met in a ritualistic way by a force greater than them that can humble them in a fashion, right? That So somehow it's like trying to, yeah, you can't initiate yourself is sort of the understanding, right? Which is why culturally it was so necessary for others, yeah, elders, uncles, and the rest to do so because, you know, you, you, you sort of, you'll inherently circumvent your own ego death, it seems, right? Because of course the ego's like, hell no, I don't, I don't want to do that. So there's something in that profound encounter, it feels like. And I wonder for you, again, in, in leaning into that question, if that also feels true in a fashion, like why is that? Why is that a necessary reconfiguration? Especially how a man may then move through the world because of going through that, not inevitably, right? But because of that reconfiguration, what might be different? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What you're saying really resonates the the need to return. You know, I can invoke Alf Dollar Gordon again to return to the mirror of nature, and it's not just a, a mirror. You know, it's a it's the realization that you we are nature. The Torah provides the basic instruction that the earth is Adama and the first human is Adam. Mistakenly translated as Adam. No, it's just another bad translation. Adam means earthling. Wow. And the original earthling was was multigendered. You know, it, it wasn't a man either. <laughs> and so the complete misconception, essentially, you know, like a hermaphroditic being, it was an earthling. So... We learn from the early words of the Torah that we are of the earth. We are earthlings. We come from the earth. We're literally molded out of the fabric of the earth. And, the, and then the winds of spirit blow our life into us. And that's a continual process happening right now, right this moment. 
the four winds are blowing. The Zohar speaks of this, that the four winds are blowing the wind of life into us right now. Hmm. So, you know, in the, 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 the history or the mythos of Judaism, you know, that, that, the, the, the tree of life is, is a cosmic representation of our rootedness, our trunkness, our branchness, and our, our leafing and flowering and fruitingness and the cycle that we are. Each one of us is a tree of life. And it's all in that metaphor, you know, that we can apply to our lives. And then the tree gets dramatically chopped down, cut down, you know, like in a moment, it's like blazing chainsaws ripping through our trunk and we fall, you know, as individuals and as a collective. That's trauma. And that, that experience is not unique to, to Judaism. That experience happens and is happening to basically every land-based culture on planet Earth. The Romans played a large part of that for a lot of these cultures, you know, including Judaism. You know, I, I have a little bit of direct relationship to the Celtic traditions through relations that I love. And, you know, I've learned of the Picts, you know, and the early indigenous, you know, what, what were the pre-Celtic people, the Pictish, and how deeply rooted they are and how, and how, how traumatized and unrooted so much of Celtic culture became too because of that and how the Celtic Reclamation Project is happening, you know, not unlike what the Earth-Based Judaism Reclamation Project is happening. Hmm. The disconnection from nature is not a trite thing to say. It is a, unfortunately, almost universal human experience at this point. Mm. And so the return to nature, as Althar and Gordon said prophetically, you know, is essential for healthy human beings. Otherwise, we're not really humans anymore. Archon Lashwala, one of my most important informative teachers in my life, he's a Peruvian medicine man who for a time carried the Lakota bundle and offered Hamble Chiapi, the, the, the vision quest in that way. He put me on the hill for four years for four days and four nights. And I've done that ceremony with him and other times as well. I think probably seven fasts like that at this point in my life. And without those fasts, you know, including the first one in 2007, I would not be who I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even, you know, I, I'm still, I'll, I'll be turning 15 March. I'm still working through my, my trauma. I've just started a new round of doing somatic experiencing work to get to the, deep, the, the even deeper layers of my Holocaust trauma and the patriarchal formation in the response and the culture I'm caring for. And I'm, you know, I'm doing the next layer of that work. It goes on and on. But without a connection to nature, I don't think we can heal at all because we're, we're too far from the basic fabric of who we are. But when we return to that fabric and we actually can drop in, and it doesn't happen for everybody because it's sometimes the, the – the damage is too strong and we need to, we need to do even more healing work. So we go over and over and over again, you know, um, by my case, you know, but when we can go and we can really re-enter the fabric of creation and not remember from the intellectual place, but in our own body and spirit, like lock back in the wilderness is waiting there for us. And I agree. It's not looking for us. It just is. And we become isness as well. And then it starts to speak. The word for wilderness in Hebrew is midbar. It both means wilderness and desert, because if you look at Israel, it's a, the wilderness is a desert. But that wild place also contains the words in Hebrew, devar, which is word, and muh, with, midaber, with the word. So when we actually can sink back into that fabric, really, 
in the quiet mind way, in the deep connected way, it starts to speak. You know, you, that strikes me of this deep listening, as you say, as the core of, of in a sense, cultural insight or revelation. And I wonder, uh, what might the land be saying in Israel, Palestine now, if there was a willingness to, you know, collectively listen to, to that insight or to that revelation? You know, what might it be saying? Oh, God. <laughs> what is it saying? I don't think it's saying anything. I think it's just weeping, just weeping, you know, weeping as it's like taking the blood of its children to the land, just weeping. I, I lived in Israel during my studies. So I spent a sabbatical year in 2014 and 15 in Israel and mm. was in a yeshiva, a traditional place of study to go deep into the Talmud and the Jewish law. And Reb Zalman always said to me, go into the Orthodox world for a time and then come back out. And so I did. I, I did that to, to, to learn, you know. And one of the things I did was I spent a couple of solo periods, one in the in the Negev, and then one in the the lands between Jerusalem and, and the Dead Sea in a place called Wadi Kelt. And in that that in that fasting time, I re- I returned from Wadi Kelt and I stayed. I had a kind of friend who was an Israeli who did who was at Arawaka as well. We went up the hill to go to Arawaka. Came and picked me up. He walked me to his car and he drove me to Jerusalem before I, I broke my fast. And he walked me up to the Temple Mount. It was luckily open that day. And I'd never been up there before and I haven't been up there since. But on that fast, I walked up to the Temple Mount and I got through the, the metal detectors and walked up the ramp and got up there where the Dome of the Rock is. It's at the, at the, at the mount of where the, the Temple of Jerusalem used to stand. The most contentious place on planet Earth by many measures. Mm. And I put my back against the Dome of the Rock. Some say that's the place where the, the Holy of Holies of the Temple stood. No one knows for sure. but And I had this experience of um, feeling the, 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 the most pure divine light. And I could almost feel before the mountain there got cut off and the, and the platform for the temple put there. And I could feel the light. And it was so brilliant and white, almost like being in a tractor beam on Star Trek or something. <laughs> And then almost in an instant later after feeling that I felt the darkness like a just huge rubber cap of darkness just clamping that light down. Um, and it all had to do with the conflict between, you know, so many people being in so much conflict for so long there. And it's just exhausted from the trauma. It's exhausted from the pain and the conflict because that place has so much light to give for the world. Muslims, Christians, Jews, the whole world, and it's just in darkness. Mm. Well, we are heading into the darkest night of the year, I suppose, at least the northern hemisphere, solstice. And I, I did notice that, yeah, you've been teaching on it as well. And I wonder, as we wind our conversation down, which I'm very grateful for, what might you offer around how to approach this time uh, perhaps from your tradition or, or ways in which you've mythically understand this moment of the dark and the possibility of the light returning. Well, I'll, fr- I'll frame it as a rabbi because it's my context, but take it into the solstice. So Hanukkah just passed and it, it, it's a lunar solar calendar. So it wobbles in the solar calendar sometimes earlier and later this year, it comes before the solstice. 
But what's unique about Hanukkah is that we're lighting lights one on the first night, eight on the last night. And it's always on the sixth and seventh night is when the new moon comes. So Hanukkah, we're always lighting the sixth and seventh light in what is actually the darkest night of the year. The night with no moon closest to the winter solstice. And the one of the basic core teachings of that tradition, which I think really resonates with many solstice teachings that I also understand is that this is a time of darkness when we get to dwell in darkness and to actually relate to darkness. So don't go to the light too fast, number one. Be with darkness. And I think if, if there's one hallmark of, you know, healthy masculinity today, I would say it's being able to be with the truth of the moment that we're in. To be able to grieve. Not that darkness always brings grief, but it is often associated. Mm. To be with the reality that, you know, what's happening in Israel and Gaza right now is horrific. What's happening in Ethiopia right now is horrific. What's happening all over the world, you know, so many places. What's happening in Ukraine is tragic and horrific. And, you know, the Anthropocene is rising and global climate change is real and they're still too many deniers, you know, and it is, it's tragic and that we are killing the earth. So being, and then our own personal experience, you know, our family relations and the, the work we have to do to break free. And so be with the darkness. What is the darkness? Let us dwell in that darkness. And then as is the traditional Hanukkah, you know, it's an old story of conquest that the, the, the temple was sacked by the Seleucid Greek army and then recovered by the Maccabees. Hmm. And you know, the, 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 the eight days of oil that lasted, the, that was only one oil that lasted eight days, that's the children's mythology. It's in the old, it's in the old stories, but in some ways that's, that's, the, that's the light story. The deep story is that, you know, that temple was, was almost destroyed, was taken, and then we reclaimed it through violent revolt. And then we were able to relight the menorah. And so Hanukkah means dedication We because we were rededicating something that was lost to us, that it was most sacred. So then I ask all of us, you know, as you, as you do walk back towards the light, perhaps through lighting a bonfire or lighting candles or walking a spiral or how you do that. You know, my family will walk a spiral. We always do that with our kids on the solstice. Hmm. But we always ask the, you know, question, the question, what's the light you want to walk towards this year? So acknowledging the darkness, like how do we rededicate our lives? How do we rededicate our communities to walking towards light in times that are tragically dark? Can we even do that? And if we can, what is the that next step? That's how I understand this time. Mm. Well, a beautiful inquiry, a beautiful prayer. I, yeah, I'm grateful for our time and our conversation today. Zelig. And is there anything else you want to leave us with before we close our conversation today? <sighs> Yeah, you know, I'm speaking from a, the position of a rabbi who is like deeply rooted in a specific tradition. And I want to say that my understanding of my deployment, as my, my teacher would say, Reb Zalman, my deployment is to stay rooted in my tradition so that I can bring forth universal, universal understandings and teachings for my people and beyond. And my hope and prayer for anyone listening is that you know, as difficult as it is for all of us to find the taproots of our traditions, 
And sure, continue to drink from other traditions. Absolutely. The time is for that as well. But to find the, the deepest roots we can find and become those trees again. So we can root and we can trunk and we can branch and fruit and we can become the cycle of life again. And that might just take a lot of time in the wilderness along with um, some deep searching and studying. But I, I, I want to be in my own taproot while partnering with peoples who are both simultaneously rooted in their own communities and tribes, but not for tribalism, for universalism. So we can all come together and, and, and weave a common story from our, you know, our unique mythologies. And I hope and pray we can all do that together and bring that regenerative culture that we dream forward. Mm. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and share on your social media. Once again, you're also invited to find The Mythic Masculine on Substack. You'll be able to subscribe to forthcoming episodes as well as become a paid supporter. Visit themythicmasculine.com supporter to learn more.